When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show and an episode in which we'll get you up to speed with the goings-on in the international break from all around the world. During this window, nine teams qualified for the Don't Mention Human Rights World Cup next November and we now have 13 of 32 total teams qualified. Who are the contenders? Who's in trouble? How should we welcome our new Canadian overlords? All of this and more will be tackled on today's pod. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today, a man who's returning from his celebration bender after Scotland booked a playoff berth, <laughs> Graham Rusford, woo! Hello, yeah, I mean, it was either a, a celebration bender or I had tonsillitis, uh, but, you know, the, 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 large, the, the, the lines are blurred between those two. Look at you pulling back the curtain and showing the listener how the sausage is made, Graham. Um, I thought, though, by the way, I gave you uh, the first introduction today because now your team's kind of sitting at the big boys' table. You deserve it. Yeah, I mean, we haven't qualified yet. We may have gone early on the whole celebration thing. Uh, <laughs> we've still got two games against likely two very good teams yeah. to get through before we are actually at the at the table. But yes, we're you know how at the you know you have a, a special event. You'll have like the adults table, and then there's like a little kids table that's attached to the end of the adults table. It's kind of like at a lower level with smaller seats. We're we're kind of at that table for the time being. Oh, Graham, you've you've set this up nicely, Joe. Where do you sit at holiday gathering? What part of the oh, table are Taylor. you sitting at? Oh, Taylor. <laughs> I'll have you know that I sit at the big boys' table. There we go. Rockwell. <laughs> at my sister-in-law's wedding, I had to sit with the uh, children at the table. Quite literally, everyone was half my age on the table. It was weird. Um, Graham, how are they handling this situation in Scotland? I heard that there was someone in Dundee who almost smiled a little bit when, when the playoff place was booked. Did, did someone in Aberdeen shake someone's hand in approval at some point? Yeah, I mean, Steve Clark kind of clenched his fist slightly above his head for a split second um, in celebration. It was wild, wild scenes. Um, but yes, it, we're, we're not used to being good. I'm even reluctant to say that because it still seems strange. We've been really good recently, but it doesn't it doesn't feel real. It still doesn't feel real. So I, if we actually qualify for the World Cup, I'm, I'm not quite sure what will happen. That's uncharted territory, at least in my lifetime. Well, let's chat more about that later in the pod. For now, you've heard their voices already. There's Joseph the Ocho Lowry. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Ryan. Uh, I've just given you the middle name, the Ocho, because you know how like Chad Ocho Cinco did the thing where he changed his name. <laughs> I was thinking maybe you could do that as well. Uh, yeah, that's that's certainly an option. Um, I'll get back <laughs> to you on whether or not that passes the review. Excellent, excellent. Also here, you've also heard him, the man who'd never cheer for his team in the press box, Taylor Rockwell. Hello. I never would. I would just do it very quietly. So I guess I would. I've, con- <laughs> be- I've contradicted myself immediately. 
be honest, Taylor, did you get sent to journalism jail for cheering in a press box? <laughs> no. I uh, See, I know not to cheer. I am not that person who loudly screams and claps. It was more of a just like a, a fist pump shake sort of thing. And a, I think a loud exhalation is probably what happened. I will say the person, Felipe, was sitting to my left. And uh, I think he... Wasn't surprised by it, but I definitely surprised a couple people to my right who seemed to think that I was having some sort of, like, incident for a moment. And then I was (laughs) sort of looking at them like, why are you surprised? Like, they just scored against Mexico. Come on now. (laughs) Fair enough. Well, yeah, it's generally against press box decorum to show any kind of bias to it if the teams uh, uh, listen up. But um, the, the worst case of this, Taylor, I saw was in the 2014 World Cup in Brazil, where journalists in the press box in American art and elsewhere were literally wearing national team kits. Yeah. Um... Now, do you remember there was a, there was a game at American Art where Chile fans stormed the press box at American Art and they looked, like trashed the place. I think they were playing Spain. Like there was ha- half the journalists in there, you couldn't tell them apart from the fans. So it was it was kind of a strange situation. In fact, that same game there was there was um, a female reporter wearing a Chile bikini, just that in the press box. Cool. That was actually what Felipe was wearing, controversially. Yeah, I was going to say, Ryan, were you wearing your England bikini (laughs) in the press box? Uh, I was before I took it off, Graham. (laughs) On that note, why don't we talk about the uh, most recent international break rather than harking back to the glory days of me semi-naked in 2014. We're going to go around the houses of all the intercontinental federations. Why don't we start off at home in CONCACAF, uh, Joseph the Ocho Lowry. Eight games into the Ocho, six left to play. Canada, Canada on top of the pile with 16 points. They beat Mexico for the first time since 2000 in the Ice Teca. US in the second place, Mexico in third at the moment, and Joe Panama in fourth, currently in, inter- in the intercontinental playoff spot, equal on points with Mexico, poised, balanced in the Ocho Joe. It's been so much fun right now. There is a divide that has rapidly developed between the top four and the bottom four. Panama right now in fourth. Level on points, though, with Mexico on 14, just down on goal difference. So that you got those top four teams, Canada, U.S., Mexico, and Panama. And then the bottom four in, in Costa Rica, Jamaica, El Salvador, and Honduras. And there still could be some crossover there. But some of the storylines coming out of the Ocho so far have been immaculate. Ryan, you mentioned Panama, and, and I, I want to hit just a beat on them later but Canada, Canada is the story maybe in global soccer, on at least on an international level right now. Top of the table again, as, as we mentioned, undefeated through eight games. They're the only undefeated team at this stage of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. They got an away draw against the U.S. in September. They got an away draw at the Azteca in October. Beat Mexico. I mean, all of these things, incredibly impressive results on the back of a good summer tournament in the Gold Cup where, yeah, they fall to the United States uh, with a really early goal. But then they they do go toe-to-toe with Mexico in the semifinals and and just end up losing in that game. But they play well. Canada, it seems to me, in a lot of ways, has arrived, or at least it looks that way right now. They have the best player in CONCACAF in Alfonso Davies. They're playing good soccer under John Herdman, who had a bit of a rough start to his time in charge of the Canadian men's national team. They weren't even an auto-qualifier for this stage of CONCACAF World Cup qualifying. They had to get through earlier rounds playing Bermuda and the Cayman Islands and Aruba and Suriname and finally Haiti before they actually made it to my middle name, the Ocho. They're flexible (laughs) in their shape. They can sit deep. They can absorb pressure if they need to. 
or they can go. And I think when they're actually out and running and getting on the breaking transition, maybe holding on to the ball a little bit, that's what they really like to do, and that's what they're really good at. They did that to Mexico at the Azteca. Not an easy thing to do and not something that most teams dare to do. It's what they did, at least in moments, against Mexico at home uh, just earlier. What was that? Earlier this week? Time is an entire blur for me at this point. Mm. (laughs) They have technical ability. They can compete physically in terms of speed and strength. They have goal scorers, Kyle Aaron, Jonathan David, and of course, as I already mentioned his name, Alfonso Davies. Clever players out wide in in Davies and Tejon Buchanan and Richie Larea. You can go on and on, and I kind of have gone on and on about this team because there's a ton to like about Canada right now, and they could be headed to the World Cup. They probably should, at this point, be headed to the World Cup. I like the idea that Canada picked the most hostile environment for this for this game possible. So you know, obviously, the, with the, the Ice Teca and then Edmonton, it was quite likely this was going to be a rather cold one for the Mexican players, and it got me thinking of where Scotland would pick the most hostile environment, like a Western Isle to play England <laughs> uh, or something like that. Uh, yeah, I like to think that they, that, that they deliberately picked that that location for that for that match. Well, and I think that's a part of it, Graham, right? Big stadium. I believe it's a Canadian football uh, stadium, like uh, Canadian Football League, uh, that actually have those games normally in Edmonton. This game was freezing, right? There was snow on the field. There was snow, a ton of snow on the field before the grounds crew got to it earlier on in the day. It's funny, though, because... With how good Canada is and how much talent they have assembled over the last few years now, there's a legitimate argument to be made that they almost hamstrung themselves by picking a location that was going to have such challenging conditions, right? You think about, okay, they can, they can force Mexico out of their comfort zone, and, and that's true, and that happened. But Canada, with how cold it was in the field, it's not like they don't have quality. It's not like they're always playing direct. It, it, it's almost to me like they made their own lives a little bit more difficult. But from a narrative standpoint, that was a great place to have this game. Taylor, your thoughts on the Canadian program at the moment? I mean, uh, uh, they've taken four points from Mexico in this Ocho. Uh, by the way, I don't think we should call uh, Edmonton the Ice Tecker. I think we should call the Azteca Hot Edmonton from now on. I think Canada <laughs> earned that privilege at this point. Um, but it's just incredible for Canada, considering, Taylor, you know, um, when they speak, their heads separate from their mouths and the, the wheels on their cars are square. I may have learned most of my Canadian facts from Talpart, but you get my point. In the spirit of that introduction, Ryan, I will say that we can blame Canada for making the Ocho even more complicated because they deserve to be top of the table, as Joe said, but it does mean that it's going to be a harder road to the World Cup for the United States, certainly for Mexico and for Panama as well, but it's certainly deserved for Canada, in my opinion, and I agree with Joe that Alfonso Davies, being the player he is and the consistent threat he is, means that there's always going to be this sort of focus on him, and I think anytime teams end up focusing on one individual... Sometimes that makes the individual rise to the occasion, but it also means other players are given more license to operate. And in this game against Mexico, Kyle Laren getting the brace, Tejan Buchanan being in there looking solid as ever. Very excited for where he goes, uh, though he will always continue to play for the Canadian national team. Has me slightly nervous as a USA fan, but I think it, it, it sets the stage for a very interesting run-in because there are definitely strengths and weaknesses to the schedule for all three of the kind of major contenders and for Panama as well. But for Canada, having already played, uh, I think, what, three of their four games against Mexico in the United States and their yep. final one being uh, home to the United States, that has to make them sort of optimistic. But then they've got several potentially very tricky road CONCACAF games, and we know how challenging those can be uh, for the United States. Dropping the, those two points to Jamaica definitely makes it a harder road, but not an impossible road. I think people uh, are maybe 
overdoing the amount of concern they have. Because I think right now, as things stand, uh, U.S. and Canada fans should be pretty optimistic. Mexican fans may be a little bit more nervous with the way things are going. But I think Mm -hmm. it's a testament that we haven't seen Tata Martino sacked yet, that there hasn't been, to my mind at least, as much sort of like like fury over the performance from this last round. Uh, We'll see if that continues to be the case if they don't pick up a win in their next game. I think that's a way to Jamaica. But overall, I think the stage is set for a pretty exciting rest of qualifying in CONCACAF. So so the US plays Canada in January, right? In another qualifier, Mm -hmm. and that's in Canada. So now now that Canada are good and i mean that in a respectful way you know they've pre- they've, they've not been a high caliber international team for a long time and now they're top of the top of the ocho wait, wait, what is that rivalry going to be like in comparison to the rivalry with mexico is that is that going to be as intense a game or is that as u.s men's national team fans is that is that almost going to be like a new sensation for you guys to to face a canada team that are almost kind of on the same level as the u.s at the moment um i think first of all i will acknowledge this is probably coming from a more arrogant perspective so i don't want to say it's it's like everyone's but i think there is probably more animosity from Canada towards the United States than there is the other way around. I, I think there is sort of that feeling of like Canada doesn't get the respect it deserves. Some of the Canadian MLS teams don't get talked about as much because they are Canadian. I think that's a, a thing I see from time to time. So I don't think it's immediately like a massive rivalry. I think it's more of a like good-natured rivalry, at least from my perspective. But again, that's where I'm saying I, I don't want to speak for Canada on that one. But I think just the... The level of hostility between uh, the U.S. men's national team and the Mexican national team historically and presently uh, is always going to make that one a bigger game and sort of the uh, the craftiness that goes on behind the scenes and playing at the Azteca at elevation and with the pollution behind it. Like there's always home field advantage and there's always that sort of clash that you never know if it's going to go well, if it's going to go poorly, if there's going to be sort of violence and physicality involved. Whereas with Canada, I think it's it's not at that level of of intensity in my mind so I think at least it isn't for the United States but that has maybe been a problem for them in the Nations League a problem for them in qualifying so maybe it needs to be more of an intense rivalry for the U.S. going forward well and, and Taylor I think the USA Canada is not there yet but right man the pieces are there for it to yep. become a, a big rivalry that's that's my view of this this competition at this point right USA Mexico is established and there's a lot more history there in big moments and that history isn't just there with Canada right now, right? So it's going to take some time for this to really develop and blossom into a full-blown rivalry. But, man, with the talent coming up on both sides, with some of the matches they've had recently and in another important one coming up in January, as you mentioned, Graham, I could see this thing growing into something really special on the international stage. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like The three players that you mentioned at, at, at the top of your list of their impressive figures right now, you know, Laren... Davies and Jonathan David they're all going to be around for a while uh, so this could be the start of something where you know maybe maybe it is just that Canada have by luck produced three and I know there's more than just three uh, good players but three you know elite level players but even still you know that that could be 10 years of pretty decent yeah. rivalry rivalry between the the two countries yeah no, I, I completely agree. Ryan, do I have time to do a beat on Panama before we move away from CONCACAF? Be- before, before we do that, Joe, I want to, in response to what <laughs> yeah. Graham said, uh, one, one final thing I would say if we're talking about the rivalry, I believe 
John Herdman said he had like lengthy conversations with Greg Berhalter about how to play against Mexico and what the United States has done historically. And I think there was a, a sort of good back and forth conversation had prior to that game. And I just can't imagine that same conversation happens between Greg Berhalter yeah. and Tata Martino. So I think <laughs> that right there tells me a little bit about the severity of the rivalry. Um, sure. Joe, we don't have time for any more Panama, but I can't say no to your face. And Panama's my favorite Van Halen song, so go ahead. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm glad to be up there with Panama. The Ryan song that they Halen. used to torture people is Ryan's favorite Van Halen song. What? Who sure. did? The Canadians? Uh, no, the, uh, isn't that the song that they played when they were trying to get, like, Noriega to come out of high, like, out of his, like, bunker as they played Panama over oh. and over again? I believe I'm correct with that statement. I thought it was Metallica when they were waterboarding at Gitmo. Maybe, uh, we're getting dark here. Why don't we talk about Panama? Yeah, Joe? you went a different route with that one. I believe they also played Britney Spears to really throw people off. But oh, that's, boy. uh, that's a different conversation for a different day. Joe! Okay, I'm going to talk about Panama, the soccer team. <laughs> uh, currently fourth, as we've said, in, in the Ocha with 14 points. Level in points with Mexico, five points ahead of Costa Rica, who's in fifth. So there is this divide that I mentioned earlier. Drew Mexico at home, beat the U.S. at home, scored three goals after the 75th minute to beat Honduras 3-2 in Honduras on Friday. It's last Friday as we're recording now. You don't necessarily want to be down multiple goals to Honduras, and, and scoring those three goals is impressive, but it really is those other results that I mentioned in some of the other matches that they've managed to string together. That Danish manager Thomas Thomas Christensen has this team playing some okay soccer and, and most importantly getting results. The best part about this team right now is their defensive work, and that's why I'm, I'm slightly more lukewarm on what we're seeing on the field because it's not always especially exciting while they do have quality out wide. Uh, Federico, uh, Freddie, excuse me, Freddie Gondola and, and Mikel Murillo, just to name a couple of players there, they have strength in the middle of their back line in, in the central midfield as well. Anibal Godoy is just eating balls up in, in that space and distributing some as well. They have allowed, according to Paul Carr, the second fewest expected goals in the Ocho so far, uh, just after the United States. So Thomas Christensen, who was appointed back in July of 2020, has gotten Panama, first of all, to the Ocho and now has them in in a position where they could realistically expect to qualify for the 2022 World Cup, which is not really something I ever expected from this Panama team. And uh, I think what they're doing there is is really, really strong. Indeed. Just two points separating the top four teams in the Ocho as it stands. We're going to take a very quick break when we come back. The rest of the world. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are turning our attention to UEFA. Qualifying groups are done. Belgium, Croatia, Denmark, England, France, Germany, Netherlands, Serbia, Spain, and Switzerland are all qualified now. There are 12 teams in the playoffs, including Italy, Portugal, and Graham. Your home nation. <laughs> I thought you were just going to end it with, and I'm in the playoffs, Graham. Just me, singularly. You are of sorts. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's weird. I think, obviously, the playoffs is split into two, so you've got seeded and unseeded teams. But within those seedings, you have a, a ranking of teams with the most points. And Scotland have more po- have more points from their campaign than Italy, mm-hmm. which, uh, that's, that makes me nervous. <laughs> I don't... <laughs> <laughs> that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a big believer in karma, and when Giorgio Chiellini um, horse collared Bukayo Saka in the Euro 2020 final, I believe that's uh, the result of what's happening to Italy right now. Anyway, Graham, continue. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, Italy have had their fair share of karma in that Jorginho, I think, has missed. He missed two penalties against Switzerland, including one in the 89th minute, which would have sent Italy um, through as group winners so they have had quite a lot of karma how much karma are you sending their way (laughs) i gotta say if ever anyone needed insight into the scottish psyche this is a perfect example of scotland are bad scotland are bad scotland are bad then you all make the playoffs and now maybe they're too good i don't feel comfortable with this like it's one or the other there's no happiness there's just we're bad we might be too good we can't get like overconfident (laughs) i I really I really appreciate this uh, insight, Graham. Thank you for that. Yeah, Graham, let's get some more positivity. Six consecutive wins in World Cup qualifiers. Yeah. You beat a Denmark side that almost had half its regular starters. Come on. I think, come on. I think we had, there was a bit two that were that were out. And also we were missing a number of our key players. So, no, I'm not having that at all. And we, and we, we battered them him, as well. Graham. It's honestly, it's the, the best... I, I've had a lot of times to mull over Scotland's last two results and performances. The the first game against Moldova was very un-Scotland because these are the sort of games we historically trip over. So we needed a, a win um, to secure the playoff place. And, you know, a lesser opponent in a must-win scenario away from home and yet start from finish, it was extremely comfortable. One goal in the first half, another in the second half. It was easy, in truth. We secured the playoff. And then you have the second game against Denmark and it was very un-Scotland-like as well. We needed a win to secure a home playoff semi-final and to be seeded for the playoff draws, which is very important. And the first half in particular was just the best. I, I, as I say, I've had a long time to mull this over. I think it's the best I've ever seen Scotland play the first half of that match. We've played well, obviously, against Minnows in that we've controlled games, but th- this is a, a Euro 2020 semi-finalist that had won 9 out of 9 in World Cup qualifying. You know, Scotland have also had good results against big teams before. Italy, France, Germany, Netherlands, um, we've all we've had good results against them. But it tends to follow this familiar pattern of we sit back, we ride our luck a little bit, we grab a goal on the counter-attack, or it's a set-piece goal. And this was just that this was nothing like that. It was an entirely different type of performance, a dominant performance, great use of the ball good positional awareness, link-up play everywhere, good relationships between players, creative, entertaining even at points. It was, there were, there was moments where I was laughing at how good it was. And you, Ali McCoy's Nicole Wait, commentary, what? he you was laughed? also laughing as well because it, it was just, I've never seen a Scotland team really play like that before. Wow. That's impressive stuff, Graham, but quite enough platforming of Scotland for one day, so we'll park that there. <laughs> um, Denmark, they top Group F. They actually released a manifesto for their trip to Qatar. Um, they're not going to do any commercial activity in Qatar. Their sponsors on their training gear and whatnot are going to be replaced by human rights messages. Um, they are making an effort to educate their fans over whether the, the whether they should attend in Qatar as well. So that's interesting. I think we'll be seeing more of that from some of the qualified teams. Uh, Italy and Portugal, meanwhile, maybe they're going to boycott but for different reasons uh taylor italy drawing with switzerland and northern ireland in this international break uh finishing second in group c yikes 
Yikes, indeed. Yikes, indeed. Not what we expected from the reigning European champions. But uh, from what what I've been reading, because I haven't been watching Italy uh, like game in and game out the way, say, Graham has with Scotland. But from my understanding, it's essentially that an Italy team that were made uh, to look greater than the sum of their parts in the summer has... Had a little bit of a downturn in form. I think some of the age of the squad is showing, especially at the back, and the questions loom about should they still have, say, Chiellini as heavily involved, having Bonucci as heavily involved, or should they kind of try some different things with these playoffs? I doubt that's where they will roll the dice and try to experiment, but I think uh, Roberto Mancini has his work cut out for him, but that said, has the experience and the know-how to, I think, get results in these uh, upcoming uh, playoff games, I fully expect Italy to be there, even if the narrative is slowly shifting towards they could miss their second World Cup in a row. It seems like mm. they'll have the uh, the wherewithal to get through, and they are, as Graham said, them. <laughs> one of those seeded teams. <laughs> so I think they are uh, certainly could get a tricky draw, but it's not like they're going to be getting uh, a world powerhouse like Pol- uh, Portugal or Scotland. I'll add on on Italy there. They've drawn a ton of games. We've talked about that. Four of five uh, since the Euro final. They've drawn four of five World Cup qualifiers since since the Euro final. But man, they're they're still playing some good soccer. I have watched some Italy. Their set pieces are still on point. They had a nice goal against Switzerland uh, off of a set piece recently, and and they're still putting up numbers and creating chances with that same possession based fluid style that Roberto Mancini showed us all in, in the build up to Euro twenty 2020, twenty 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 one, and and when that's exactly what we're seeing now. I like you, Taylor, would be surprised if Italy don't end up making their way through the playoffs and ending up in the World Cup. See, I I watched their last two games. Um their last two qualifiers against Switzerland and Northern Ireland. And I get what you're saying, Joe, but I I just felt they were missing a little bit of the verve and attack that they had at at the Euros. So it's it's still very much the, the same patterns of play, but maybe just lacking a little bit of intensity. And also, I think Chiro Immobile being out injured recently... He has his critics immobile, but I think he is very important to this Italy team. And you look at their performance against Northern Ireland, they had 12 shots, but finished with um, an expected goals value of 0.92. So that doesn't really suggest that they were they were battering the door down against a, a fairly you know ordinary Northern Ireland team, a team that they really should be sweeping aside with, with um, some ease. So it, it feels to me that they're, they're just... They're just lacking a little bit of cutting edge in, in, in the final third. I, I am with you guys. I'm not too worried about them. But it's, it's, it is it's uh, they clearly have had a bit of a hang- hangover after the Euros. Um, you know, they, all eight points that they, they've dropped in the qualification campaign came after Euro 2020. And it seems that Jorginho is uh, having the hardest hangover of all in that team. I do oh, also boy. think anytime you win the title as Italy did and look as dominant and comprehensively good as Italy did in the Euros, it, it does paint a pretty large target on your back. And so I do wonder if there is uh, like a raised performance level from some of their opponents because they're taking on the European champions because that is a, a pretty big sort of name to take down. Uh, I So I think... That's the thing that maybe is like raising their game or forcing them to raise their game and maybe better preparing them if and when they make the World Cup, which I think they will. I have way bigger concerns about Portugal, who I think could still easily make it and are top of the seedings for the playoffs, but not a Portugal team I would have expected to struggle the way they have and not trying to be disrespectful to Serbia, but it's not one of those situations in which they're put into a group with another sort of powerhouse team and it's always going to be not sure who will make it and not sure who's going to go into the playoffs. Here, I think Portugal should be a little bit more concerned. 
Let's talk about that then, Taylor. Portugal, as you say, uh, losing 2-1 to Serbia. Serbia going through uh, automatically. Portugal, one of those 12 teams in the playoffs. Uh, those 12 teams, by the way, will be go down to three available spaces. That's not easy, even if you are seeded. Um, what, so we shouldn't have seen it coming necessarily, were you saying there, Taylor? Well, I mean, I think I just with the talent they have, and it's a Portugal team that uh, themselves have done quite well in recent Euros. But in this case, uh, for them to, I think, playing at home only needing one point to automatically qualify and against a team that's a, a fair few places below them in the rankings, it seemed like the kind of momentum was there for them to be able to get the result. I think they get the opening goal courtesy of Renato Sanchez. But mm. then to be pegged back the way they were and to not have the fight back that you would expect was, again, just not expected. And when there's Ronaldo in there, not having the most fun at, at club level, certainly, but a player that kind of I always think will raise his game for those types of big moments. And even if he does that, to not have the squad around him do the same uh, with the talent they have and maybe the combination makes that difficult for the manager to know exactly who to play and when, it just seems like there are more issues for Portugal to figure out uh, before they can feel comfortable about making the World Cup. Feels to me like they need a, a bit of a fresh start. Yeah. Uh, they, they need some fresh ideas. I would go as far as to say they need a new manager. Mm, Obviously, yeah. Fernando Santos. He's he did, he's done a great job. He lifted the, the you know led them to the Euro twenty sixteen title. No, no, Joe, but, Graham. That was Ronaldo. He was coaching that final. <laughs> okay, it was co managers. Let's <laughs> say, but um, yeah, at that point they didn't. Besides Ronaldo, they didn't really have a group of players that that should have taken them that far. And so his tactics and approach leveled the playing field in Portugal's benefit at that time now they have a much stronger group of players and it just feels like that approach from Santos is now holding them back you know you look at the team that played against Serbia you know obviously you've got Ronaldo but their front line is Bernardo Silva and Jota on the other side you know you've got Renato Sanchez Danilo Pereira who plays for PSG great player Cancelo arguably the best right back or full back in world football right now Ruben Diaz uh, Nuno Mendes who's the first choice left back for, for PSG so they have a really good team a team that should not just be qualifying for World Cups but aiming to go far in World Cups and I just wonder if in a strange sort of way if missing out on this World Cup might actually do them some good in the long term it feels like they need a, need a little bit of a reboot, reboot in the same way that the Dutch and the Italians rebooted after they missed the last World Cup I, I feel like maybe Portugal might benefit rather than just continuing with Santos until the next World Cup either getting knocked out in the group stages or going out in the first knockout round and then you know being left in the same position I feel like maybe a quick cut might actually uh, help them yeah that's a silver lining I'm sure Portugal fans will not love potentially having no. to embrace but uh, like looking at I mean I think a win in either of their final two games would have been enough, but they end up not being able to get the points against Ireland and not being able to get the points against Serbia. And I think the only goal they get in that game comes from a Serbia mistake at the back. And and it seems, from what I've read, as though Bruno and Ronaldo and their sort of lack of chemistry is a big part of this. And so I do wonder if maybe having a new manager come in figuring out what makes this squad look the best and maybe that isn't Ronaldo maybe he doesn't help this team at this point in his career or maybe it's finding a different use for him or a different use for Bruno I'm not sure but I, I agree Graham that if it does not go well if they don't end up making it maybe even if they do make the World Cup it wouldn't be the worst idea for them to change some things yeah and you, you can't really expect Bruno and Ronaldo to have much chemistry it's not like they play for the same club team right. <laughs> well I, chemistry honestly isn't... I kind of wonder if maybe that's part of the problem 
is that <laughs> they're not getting along particularly well at club level. Like Bruno's yeah. form has had a pretty sizable downturn as Ronaldo has come in and gotten the goals that he's gotten. So I've even seen that speculated that maybe they're too much around each other, too much in each other's orbit, and that is part of the problem. The thing is, though, Portugal have been underwhelming for a long time. I'm not saying that can't be part of the problem, Taylor. And, and yes, I understand that they've won silverware in the last five Joe, years. Joe, just let me blame Ole. Just let me blame Ole for everything, please. Okay, you can blame Ole. Okay, I, I'm all aboard Graham's idea of, of blaming <laughs> Fernando Santos. I, I think uh, under him, they have rarely looked impressive. And Graham, I like your idea of saying, well, initially he sort of leveled the playing field tactically using that as a, as a way to leverage Portugal forward. But but now I think he's holding them back. There's a good Twitter thread uh, from Thiago Esteval, who is a top uh, scouting consultant yeah. for a, a big European club, also Portuguese. I believe he's been on the show before years he ago. Has. I think I think Daryl interviewed him. I remember that show. And, and Thiago tweeted out, a lot of big World Cup qualifying failures, and Portugal have not failed yet, to be very clear. A lot of those big failures are reflective of a clear halt in talent production and in countrywide football setup issues. I don't really think that's the case with Portugal, says Tiago. He says there's huge managerial problems at the top, Fernando Santos, in terms of tactical setup, team selection, and overly result-centric mentality. And then there's this struggle of having Ronaldo in there that you have to work around him tactically. I think those, and this is essentially what Tiago is saying, and I agree with him, those are the issues right now. And, and maybe even just solving the Santos issue uh, from a coaching standpoint would, would change this team. And, and I think they're going to be close to on top of the world almost from the moment they make that change, depending on who that next hire is. Well, gents, the uh, the playoffs will take place uh, next March. There'll be six single-leg semifinals followed by single-leg uh, playoff finals to determine those final three places in UEFA. Um, meanwhile, a team who's been gently, quietly ticking away in the background doing their thing, Taylor. Yeah. Die Mannschaft, Germany. Oh no one got more points than them in UEFA qualification. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe not the strongest group they were in, but Hansi Flick getting it done, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, all you can do is beat the opponents in front of you. And worth noting, uh, Joachim Lowe did start qualifying with Germany. Then there was the transition in manager. The one loss occurred under Lowe since Hansi Flick has taken over. Uh, Seven games, seven wins, 31 goals for, two against. Uh, The top goal scorers in the group with five goals apiece were all German, Serge Gnabry, Okai Gundogan, and Timo Werner. So he has got the team scoring goals. He has got the t- the team That's not a bit frightening actually. Right, he has got them uh, not conceding goals as well. Thirty six goals for and four goals against through ten games in qualifying. As you said, Ryan, North Macedonia, Romania, Armenia, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. Not the sternest of opponents but that said that's an Iceland team that has uh, been very difficult just ask say England Uh, that's a Romania team that has plenty of talent in there Armenia have proven that they can take down a team or two here and there North Macedonia we saw in the Euros uh, Graham's favorite team of all time except for Scotland so (laughs) again not like not the again, we don't have that situation where we have like a couple giants in one group or a, a couple very consistently good teams in one group but that said, Germany have been consistently good. And there's just other little stories in there that make them fun. Uh, did you all see the one about Tony Cruz being offered a testimonial? No. I did not. Oh, it made me happy. Uh, here's the quote. The German Federation offered Tony Cruz a farewell last week along with Yogi Lowe, but he declined. He had training with Real Madrid the next day, and he's not a guy who likes ceremonies like that. I love Tony Cruz for skipping the unnecessary ceremonies, <laughs> but reading more about him, I learned that he is. His brother has a quote about how he will like take phone calls five minutes before important games to talk about like lower division results in Germany and has very <laughs> strong opinions about their their hometown club. So I just... I 
I, it made me love Tony Cruz all the more, especially because he doesn't attend meaningless things and instead focuses on the football. So too does Hansi Flick. So too do Germany. And I have them as one of my two favorites for the 2022 World Cup. Yeah. I, I would like uh, Tony Cruz, but he's a big Robbie Williams fan, and that, that seems <laughs> that uh, peculiar to me. Yeah, he like tweets Robbie Williams every so often to, to, to wish him like happy birthday and things like that, <laughs> which is uh, strange behavior. <laughs> Bless. That's nice. Uh, Taylor, my eyebrow raised Carlo Ancelotti style when you said Germany are fun, but then I realized the story you told was about one of their players not wanting to have fun. So that's yeah, uh, exactly. order restored, I think. Thank yeah, you very much. I think so. That. And, you know, Thomas Muller's in there. He's back in the fold and, and doing Thomas Muller things on and off the pitch that always makes them more interesting but just I think a team under Hansi Flick that can be as aggressive as Germany are in the way they they press in the way they attack and the way they possess and move the ball and create chances and score goals they've got so many threats they're so consistently good across the pitch and with the manager who seems like he has a point to prove with the way things went at Bayern and sort of stepping away from there because of backroom uh, turmoil, I think he probably wants to show that he can take over Germany, lead them to a World Cup and maybe even a World Cup final. And then maybe we move on from there. Who knows? Maybe he sticks around for forever. But either way, it just it feels like there is motivation across the board for the German national team. I, I can't believe they hired... Hansi Flick, yeah. like an actual good manager. Right. That's against international <laughs> saga rules. Thought we had a rule here that we would hire people that never come on Germany. <laughs> Stephen Gerald was available. What were you doing? <laughs> I don't know. Um, before we leave UEFA land, gents, uh, and speaking of uh, German soccer, Derek Ray had a little uh, debate on his Twitter uh, a few days back about the representation that UEFA has, uh, whether it's overrepresented or underrepresented in its in terms of its uh, places that it gets in the World Cup. Um, UEFA has 55 nations, uh, you know, and it gets 13 of the 32 spots, so the, the biggest chunk. Um, CAF, by contrast, has 54 member nations, and it gets five. So, you know, almost a third of what UEFA gets. AFC gets four and a half places, uh, not including the host nation in this case. Uh, CONCACAF, uh, three and a half. OFC, Oceania, I should say, uh, half a place with a continental intercontinental playoff. And CONMEBOL, four and a half places. So UEFA, do we feel, I'll come to you, Graham, do you feel that UEFA is fairly represented or overrepresented in this tournament of 32 teams? Bear in mind, UEFA teams have won the last four World Cups, mm. uh, a European team been in every final since 1950 so you know maybe they have you could argue they've earned those places but then there's a matter of representation and giving other um continents a uh, you know yeah. a fair shout I, I think it depends on what you see the the world cup as so i think if you see the world cup as the pinnacle of soccer you know a, a showcase of the sport at its pure sporting best i think it's quite clear that uefa is probably underrepresented let me finish my point here if, if that's your point of view it's probably underrepresented because i think the the water table in uefa and european international soccer is higher than it is anywhere else i don't think that's i don't think that's ignorant to say that i think there is a, a quite a, a deep level of quality in european international soccer um you know at the last world cup you had italy and the netherlands missing out and i think clearly they were probably among the 32 best teams in the world in 2018 2018 at that point however i personally don't see the world cup like that that's the champions league you know if you're looking for the for the 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 sport at its at its best at the elite level that's the champions league that's the best team the best players the World Cup for me is about representing different cultures and ways of life and in turns different ways of soccer and how people see the game around the world. And so 
I think UEFA's probably just re- represented fine in that regard. In fact, if you look at, you mentioned there, Africa, with five teams from, what is it, 54 member nations? Yeah. That is rough. That is really rough. And I think that's one of the, the biggest arguments for an expanded World Cup, which on balance I am probably not in favour of, but it is a, that's a strong argument that really, if we're expanding the World Cup, it should be other confederations besides UEFA who are getting those places just so there is greater, greater representation. So yeah, I think it comes down to what you see the World Cup as, personally. Graham, I, I really agree with you, and I think... I was against the expanded World Cup. I like the 32 teams. I like the even division of groups with four teams apiece. But if you want to have maybe more widespread or fair representation, if you keep it the same size, it means you have to take spots away from other uh, confederations, which is never going to happen. But if you expand it, then you could maybe be a little bit more fair in the allotment. So I think CAF jumped to nine spots instead of five. I think UEFA will have 16. So you can see the sort of increase there three for uefa four for calf but i think uh, i think from a like percentage standpoint that does make it a little bit better maybe it should be one more for calf but i think you still have the playoffs on the end of that there's two kind of open birds in the 48 team format so it does seem like it balances things a bit more because calf is the only one for me that sort of seems very unbalanced and very unfair aside from that like what common bowl had has four and a half now for 10 countries common bowl maybe that's uh, unfair because you could argue five to six teams routinely would do pretty well or could do pretty well at the world cup but it seems like for the most part other allotments are more fair so i'm glad that that does give calf almost double what they had uh, at present level joe your thoughts on this one taylor and graham uh, taking up some space on your fence at the moment are you on it <laughs> Oh, no, everything that Graham said, I, I completely agree with. And, and Taylor, a lot of what you said, I agree with. The only thing that maybe I'd, I'd pick a bone with you about is South America, I think, is a little underrepresent, underrepresented in terms of the quality of those teams. But still, at the end of the day, I don't... It's not that I don't care about this, but we I can't think have okay more than half the teams go to the World Cup, Joe. This is an MLS. That's not how these things work. <laughs> yeah, we can't have you know, eight teams from each. Whatever. But that's that's a separate issue that I also would be happy to talk about at any point in time. I think South America might be a little represented, underrepresented on quality, but I don't think that's necessarily my favorite yeah. way to look at the World Cup. It's fun to have that smattering of teams from all across the world, and if you have UEFA with. with 15 or 20 teams in there out of 32, you don't really get that to the same degree. In terms of quality, yes, UEFA should have more spots, and in that I agree with Derek Ray and everybody else on, on that side about, but it's just not necessarily how I want to look at or consume the World Cup. Excellent stuff. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we will look at the rest of the confederations uh, taking a deep dive into OFC, Oceana, checks notes. They haven't done any qualifying yet. Back soon! Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back talking World Cup qualifiers in this international break. Uh, let's go to the OFC Oceana. Qualification hasn't started yet there, Taylor. Delayed by COVID, uh, 11 teams in Oceana, including New Zealand, whom we have seen on the World Cup stage before, competing for one playoff spot next June. That's got to be a bit frustrating for them having not quite got started yet, Taylor. Especially since I think you said they're competing for one playoff spot. They're competing for half a playoff spot, no? I suppose half a place, yeah. Oh, half yeah. a place, yeah. One yeah. playoff spot. Yeah, it seems seems kind of brutal. It's crazy that they haven't started yet. Do, do you know, Ryan, what the timeline is? Because I feel like every time I read it, it's pushed back and TBD and it's probably going to be around this time frame and then it gets pushed back another few months every single time. Yeah, Every, every team on an island for one day and yep. only the winning team actually gets to leave. I think Graham has just proposed <laughs> Thunderdome. I'm into it. Let's see what happens. It's definitely a reality show in there, Graham. We should uh, flesh that one out a little bit. But the, the playoff, I believe, will be in June. I presume the latest they can try and do this thing is in March window. But we, uh, we shall see there. Why don't we turn our attention to South America, to Conmebol? Um, the easiest qualification process to follow, certainly, as Taylor mentioned earlier, 10 teams. They play each other in a round robin. The top four go through, uh, top four and a half, excuse me, go through. Brazil uh, became the first South American nation to qualify for this World Cup. Uh, doing so with six qualifiers remaining. Not bad. They got a 1-0 win over Columbia in Sao Paulo last Friday that did that for them. Uh, Copa America champs Argentina also through after a goalless draw against Brazil uh, at home on Tuesday. They are also unbeaten in qualification. Both uh, Brazil and Argentina are. Uh, Argentina avoiding the crises that sometimes slash often um, plague their <laughs> qualification process, Graham. So that's good for them, huh? Yeah, yeah it's been, uh, by their standards, r- relatively... Uh serene for them to be in 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 second place it does it does feel like they have a a, there was a spell there where argentina's team was in a real dip just even in terms of individual quality but it seems like they've maybe turned a little bit of a corner between you know rodrigo de paul and uh, giovanni la celso and letaro martinez and and obviously um messi christian romero at the back so they, they do have a pretty good team at the moment and i think they'll probably do quite quite well at the world cup if they aren't uh you know if they don't suffer some sort of 
uh, crisis, as tends to be the case at these tournaments. I agree with all those names that Graham listed and how important they've been. I would add Emmy Martinez. Having a reliable goalkeeper who is actually playing for the longest time, it seems to to my mind, it's been uh, Sergio Romero, who was obviously the understudy at Manchester United. But even before that, I think from Sampdoria, wasn't starting there either. So to have a goalkeeper who's starting in the Premier League and is a reliable starter, a consistent starter, and a very good player, sort of between the sticks, leading that back line, but then you've got plenty of solid defenders ahead of them and also Otamendi. Uh, But then the attacking talent (laughs) probably makes up for that one. Otamendi, uh, controversially, should have been given a red card in that game against Brazil through an elbow that was seen as not being thrown, even though it pretty clearly was. The referee and the VAR team for that game have been suspended, I think, for the rest of qualifying. I think it was a Uruguayan officiating team. It it seemed like it would have been a little bit hard. Like, I could see how it was given as, like, incidental. Like, oh, he didn't mean to. The elbow came up. But then there's the angles where it looks like he's absolutely throwing an elbow, Otamendi. But maybe that is why that game finished nil-nil. That aside, I think Argentina have to be confident in that they aren't having that sort of skid that Ryan talked about, but just do seem to be a more cohesive unit. And it does feel like they are all playing towards getting Lionel Messi to another World Cup and ideally giving him the opportunity to win a World Cup so he can sort of cement that status yeah good luck with that Uh, at least that game got finished though taylor you Mm. remember in september um this brazil argentina fixture being uh, abandoned after five minutes when argentine argentine players were accused of uh, breaking covid protocol but um given taylor the the awesome firepower potentially on display in these games and the hype between argentina and brazil a nil nil here in which the highlight was otamendi and fred hitting the bar why why wasn't it more fun? I mean, isn't that... A, I feel like that's a thing that kind of consistently happens when you get two big teams playing each other. And with that said, there are times when they it's two play... old firmification is what I call it. <laughs> I don't know if, that, if you mean because they play each other every other week or because it ends up being not as exciting as you would <laughs> think. There are still those games that do have fireworks, that do have the big moments. And even in this game, you have the controversial red card not given. Uh, but I do... Like, I remember... I can't even remember if it was last season or the season before or five years ago in the Premier League. But wasn't it the case that we kept getting these big matchups and we were also excited for yeah. them and then they kept being nil-nil because I think last season. yeah, everybody's aware of the importance of the moment, of what it could mean, and more, I think, more importantly, what losing means. And you don't want to be the manager that lost to Brazil. You don't want to be the Argentina midfielder that lost the ball that led to Brazil winning. And I think it, and vice versa for Brazil, certainly. So I think it leads to maybe a more cautious approach from time to time, knowing what is on the line away from qualifying. To some extent, I think Brazil versus Argentina in World Cup qualification, the qualification comes second compared to the reputation and the import of the match between the two. In third place in the uh, Conmebol group, we have Ecuador flying high with 23 points, six points clear uh, if qualification so far with six games to go. Colombia in fourth place uh, and Peru in the Interconfederation, Interconfederation, excuse me, playoff uh, in fifth place. So, um, Joe, Ecuador flying pretty high, maybe keeping the likes of Chile and Uruguay out of this World Cup. Ecuador have been have been doing really well, according to We Global Football, who, who calculates uh, odds for teams qualifying. 
they're, they have a 98.2% chance to qualify for the World Cup, which I think is awesome. The work that they've done so far under Argentinian manager Gustavo Alfaro has been, has been really good. He's been in charge of the team since 2020. Ecuador didn't do all that well in this summer's Copa America, but they've gotten some big results in World Cup qualifying. A 6-1 win over Colombia last year. They beat Chile away. There's, there's been good stuff here. The way they play, lots of width in the attack, a strong double pivot, mobile. They like to attack in transition, but they can also use some creativity in the final third to break teams down. They've been enjoyable to watch, and, and I think they're worth monitoring to see if they can turn that 98.2% into 100%. Indeed. As I mentioned, uh, Graham, uh, Chile and Uruguay outside of qualification points at the moment, not far outside, only a point outside. But we are in the position where one of those two nations um, might not be making the trip to the Middle East. Yeah, and, and Uruguay are the one that is most striking for me, because obviously re- in recent World Cups, they have done exceptionally well and they've had some of the best players in the world. But they... Uh, yeah, this this recent international break, they um they suffered a three 0 defeat against ten man Bolivia, Oof. which is not ideal at all. Um, and it just feels like kind of in a similar way to Portugal, it feels like they're they're at the end of a cycle. But the the difference and the concerning thing for Uruguay is that they're key players. So whereas Portugal actually have a number of younger players coming through, or even just at the peak of their career. The the the, be, the key players for Uruguay, your, your Luis Suarez is your Edson Cavani or Diego Godin. They're all kind of into the twilight of their career, and they do have some players coming through. Uh, Rodrigo Bentancur, of course, plays for Juventus. Ronald Araujo watched him a lot for Barcelona. I'm a massive fan of him, so he's maybe the the Diego Godin replacement. He's currently injured at the moment, and and then Jose Jimenez at Atletico Madrid. So they still have a strong centre back pairing. But elsewhere, particularly in attack, I'm not totally sure who's going to replace Suarez and Cavani in particular. And I always think um, that Uruguay have been at the top of the international soccer for a long time. And I, the, the two, I would split the one era almost into two halves. So you had kind of the Diego Forlan era, which went straight into the Suarez era, Suarez and Cavani era. And yeah, I just, I just, it feels like they are at the end of a cycle a little bit. So it would, it would be shocking to see their name not in the World Cup hat, but equally... This team, maybe in terms of the quality of the team and where they're at in their development, it it might not be that shocking, actually. Two things there for me. I I think you could probably throw Ferran Torres into the conversation for like potential future attackers, potential current attackers. But when you look at him compared to Suarez and Cavani, it seems like he does different things or functions in a different role. So maybe that requires them changing their tactics a little bit, or maybe that just means they need to find more similar players to Suarez and Cavani, and that's kind of a difficult thing to do. So, Graham, I share your concern. Going back to Joe talking about Ecuador, I also share the concern of Uruguay not being there because Ecuador, I think, have, what, four games left in qualifying, uh, two of which are against Brazil and Argentina. So maybe that means like, oh, okay, they're going to drop those points for sure, except both of those are at home. Uh, Quito, a fairly high elevation, not easy to play. And historically, Ecuador are a team that get their wins at home, do not get their wins on the road, and that kind of inconsistency in form is what dooms them. The fact that they have played a number of difficult games on the road already and are in the position they are in, meaning I think in those four games they've got Brazil at home, they're away to Peru and Paraguay, and then their final game is home to Argentina. You would expect them to get some points there, and that does make Uruguay's uh, road to the World Cup all the more challenging. Joe, this does then, I think, sort of solidify your idea that maybe there is enough talent there that you could send seven teams from Commonwealth and and be just fine. It just feels weird to send 70% of a confederation to a World (laughs) Cup. 
Oh, for sure. It's it's a weird thing to think about conceptually, but when you look at the talent on these teams yeah. and how good they are, there is a pretty strong argument for something like that. They just need to invent more countries and it'll make it a bit fairer. That's probably <laughs> what they should do. Uh, just for clarity, you, you you are correcting me there, Taylor. There are four match days left, not six, as I mentioned in CONMEBOL. Before we leave South America, though, Taylor, um, Brazil, obviously, or oh, should be considered one of the favourites in this tournament, and they are doing rather well in qualification. How serious a threat are they in this tournament, Taylor? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that is my answer. Any more? Uh, I got to say, I, so... A thing that I saw reported a couple different places was that the the weak spot for Brazil was their fullbacks. That they've got a, a, like a strong center back pairing in Marquinhos and Thiago Silva. They've got midfield depth and defensive midfield depth at that with Casemiro and Fabinho, and then obviously a lot of attacking a talent ahead of them. But fullback could be the sort of drawback. We're not sure what's going to happen there. Which made me go and look at that. And Alexandro and Danilo have started basically every single game. So I'm not quite sure where that narrative is coming from. Maybe the argument is that behind them, I think Emerson has played one game. And Guillerme Aranha, who is not a player I'm familiar with, has started one game. So maybe there's a depth issue there. But I think- You've still got Renan Lodi, though, who's, yeah, you know, yeah, Atletico right? Madrid's left back. So, so I think they're, still not bad. I think they're doing just fine. They've got Allison and Ederson. It, it, it does feel like a Brazil team. Team that is loaded in a way that Brazil often is, but then maybe even more so. And on top of that, the I would say even like the attacking talent isn't quite at that level of just being like superstar, superstar, superstar. Like there's certain there's Neymar, obviously, there's Gabriel Jesus, but to me, there's names in there that are going to be superstars. Uh, one that we've talked about who now I can't remember is Anthony from Ajax. I was trying to remember. I was, can't remember if it's yeah. Anthony or Anthony. Uh, but he's not even starting for this team. Uh, Vinny Jr., Lucas Paqueta tend to start ahead of him. But Anthony is a player that I think you look at what he's doing with Ajax at club level, you would expect that he will make this squad. You would expect that he will have a pretty strong World Cup and you would expect a pretty big move for him in the summer. I think there's lots to like about this Brazil team. I have them as joint favorites alongside Germany. I'm skipping ahead, Ryan. I know you're going to ask that later on, but I'm telling you now, those are my two. <laughs> well, Taylor, the, the thing we noticed, maybe in, uh, definitely in 2014, you know, when Neymar died, um, <laughs> it felt like they were a one-man team yeah. to a certain extent, but maybe we don't have that perception now. I, I think they still are in the sense that he does a lot for this team and can play a number of different roles because they tend to go with a 4-2-3-1, which has Neymar playing as the 10, that number 10 in the kind of attacking three but they can play with a 4-3-3 with him central or him wide they've gone with a 4-4-2 with him partnering Gabriel Barbosa who I forgot was around uh sometimes Gabriel Jesus up there too so I think he can play a lot of different roles and is a very versatile player for them so if he were to get injured if he couldn't be there maybe that has to have them roll the dice a bit more or kind of go with something a little bit more stable and less having Neymar fill in the holes and then you can kind of put people where you need to. That would be my only sort of concern about Neymar getting injured. But I think they have plenty of talent to make up for that. And 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 the thing is, when when Neymar died at the 2014 World Cup, Brazil had to play Fred, not not the <laughs> Manchester United one. Amazingly, an even worse oh, Fred uh, up front, and so they don't really have that issue now. If Neymar yeah. gets an injury or or if he's attending his sister's uh, birthday party during the World Cup, they do have other players <laughs> that can come in who are of a pretty high caliber. Graham, I'm guessing you don't know this, uh, but you you did just bring up my most like. For me, at least, my, 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 greatest, my greatest letdown was 
I believe one of my very specific predictions for that World Cup was that I guaranteed that Fred would win the Golden Boot, and I have never felt more shame. So thank you for that, Graham. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah, rightfully so. That was a terrible, terrible shout. (laughs) Well, um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, if you're listening, you're not not a Taylor's greatest letdown, so there's that. Um, (laughs) Never, never. I'll never forget 99. Indeed. All right. Well, I think we should wrap up South America there. Why don't we take a little journey to Africa and CAF? We're in the second of three qualifying rounds, which are completed this week. Uh, Taylor, want to give a little pricey what's going on there? Yes. Uh, African qualifying, for those who are unaware, is really, really tough because you have... Initial rounds of qualifying, you then have group stages with teams split into uh, groups of four. Then at the end of that, each group winner advances to the final round where they're basically just drawn against each other. The most famous one being when Bob Bradley, to me at least, when Bob Bradley was coaching Egypt, his Egypt team just strolled through, looked so good, and then they drew a Ghana team that was loaded as well, and they ended up getting destroyed in those two knockout round games. So Mm. it's sort of unforgiving in the sense that you can have a, a year to two years of very good results and then two games and that's all she wrote. But some teams didn't <laughs> even make it to that level. Cameroon advancing uh, to the final round at the expense of Ivory Coast. It feels weird yeah. to not have Ivory Coast at a World Cup, but that will be the case because Cameroon got a 1-0 win on the final day to uh, leapfrog over Le Elephant. Uh, Ghana squeezing past South Africa on a third tiebreaker. Uh, they had level points, level goal difference, but I believe Ghana had scored one more goal than South Africa 7 to 6. So Ghana going through, which means we have 10 teams qualified for the final round Algeria, Cameroon, DR Congo, Egypt, Ghana, Mali, Morocco, Nigeria, Senegal, and Tunisia. Um, let's spare a thought, Taylor, for Djibouti, who are in Group A or who were in Group A. Six losses out of six, uh, four goals scored, 29 goals conceded. Uh, they didn't have much fun in this second round of CAF qualification. They have a population of around 900,000. I looked it up. That's roughly the same size as San Jose, California. Um, it is, as you say, an unforgiving process, but that must have been particularly grueling for the people of Djibouti. Um, anything else to talk about in CAF? Joe, how about Algeria? They're doing rather well. Yeah, I just think we should note at least that Algeria has gone 33 straight games without losing. That extends Woof. over multiple years. They have advanced to this next round of qualifying. There's talent there. They're a fun team to watch. I'm looking forward to seeing more from them. Yeah, and I really hope we we get a good kind of split of the the teams against each other because I think I really enjoyed uh, Tunisia as well or, or and Morocco at the last World Cup. I thought were all pretty interesting. So I would love to get a balance of teams coming out of Africa uh, playing different styles with a lot of different talent across the board. Uh, yeah, I, I look forward to the the final round of qualifying, even if it feels very very unforgiving. One last federation to turn our attention to, gents, the AFC Asian qualification. Uh, they're in the third round of qualification, two groups of six in there at the moment. Iran and uh, South Korea leading Group A. Uh, group B, Saudi Arabia are top there, four points clear there. Japan in second. Australia, meanwhile, in third. They will advance to a fourth round, which means potentially another two playoffs to get to the World Cup. A tricky path if Australia, Taylor, stay in that position. They drew both their games in this break against Saudi Arabia and China. Yes, and a view behind the curtain. When Ryan initially asked me this question, I had the results in reverse order. So I thought things were going way better than they are because if you flip it around, they're doing really well. They've won a bunch of games in a row. 
But in actuality, they have uh, failed to win any of their last three, uh, <laughs> starting with a 2-1 to one loss to Japan, a 0-0 draw with Saudi Arabia, the 1-1 one one draw with China, as Ryan mentioned. It, it doesn't seem great for Australia. I will say that their remaining schedule is home to Vietnam, away to Oman, home to Japan, and then away to Saudi Arabia. So a home game against Japan, I think, is certainly favorable than a road game against Japan. You would expect them to be able to beat Vietnam and Oman, which leaves that final game against Saudi Arabia that I think is going to be the kind of end-all, be-all. And it feels to some extent, and I may be speaking out of ignorance here, so grain of salt, but it feels to some extent like what we've said about Portugal and Uruguay could maybe extend to Australia a little bit, that it does feel like there's still a reliance on some of that kind of veteran talent, the proven names, but that does mean we've got some 30-year-olds and 30-plus-year-olds in there, especially when it comes to the attack. There are some youngsters breaking through and, and more involved, but it does seem like it's an up-and-down Australia team at the moment. That said, mm. maybe they end up just turning this around and getting four wins from four games, and then I look foolish in retrospect. I read a, I read a report of their, their game against... Uh... China, the one that they drew one all. Now that's a team that they beat in, in September three right. 0 So that, that I think those, that those two results kind of show the 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 slide in performances and results that they've had over over a very short period of time. But the word that they used was cross spam, which basically was um, illustrating how this is a team that doesn't seem to have many ideas beyond just crossing the ball in and trying to win win headers, and how they're over over reliant on that. So I think there's also a, a case that even the players. I mean, I'm looking at their team, the the team that that drew against China, a player that stands out to me is Martin Boyle and I think he's actually been really successful for Australia he's a he's a speedy winger you want to get him stretching the pitch you want to get him in behind and so if they're playing crosses into the box um yeah it seems like maybe they've got a problem with them um, finding a style that actually works for the group of players that they have yeah and there are extenuating circumstances for Australia and a few of the other AFC nations. They This is the first uh, qualifiers they've actually played in Australia due to COVID and quarantine rules. Yeah. So uh, they might maybe fare a little better as as this progresses. Who knows? But as you say, Taylor, they are bringing through some new younger players as well, one of whom is Charlotte FC's Riley McGree, who I was with the day before he flew to Australia uh, for this international break, and he seemed in pretty positive spirits, and he's in very good form at the moment. Uh, Joe, anything else you want to talk about from AFC. How about um, Iran and South Korea doing well in Group A? Iran maybe, you know, playing against the US in the World Cup in Qatar. That sounds politically sound. <sighs> yeah, those two teams, Iran and, and South Korea, tops of Group A, as we've already discussed. Uh, no other team in that group has more than six points. So with only uh, four games to go, they're near locks at this point. Iran hasn't lost yet. They've got five wins and one draw. South Korea hasn't lost yet either. They've got four wins and two draws. Those two teams played against each other and drew back in October. They play again in March. I believe it's the second-to-last match day for this confederation. That's going to be a fun game. So I've definitely got my eyes on that group. And then one more hit on Group B. Saudi Arabia uh, is, is looking strong, right? They're, they're at the top of that group. They beat Japan one nothing <gasps> back in October, oh, drew wow. Australia last week. Coached by Irv Renard. Uh, I, I'm certain I butchered that pronunciation. But but Renard was Morocco's coach. Taylor, you mentioned Morocco earlier. Yeah. He coached Morocco at the 2018 World Cup, and that team was fun, right? They were stuck in that group with Portugal and, and Spain. But I think he's a really good manager. High pressing, has a lot of, of fun tactical wrinkles in there. Uh, I have my eye on that team because I want to see how they're progressing under him going forward. 
and and Renard is the most international yep. soccer of all the international yes. soccer managers in the history of international soccer. See, when you create a manager and a football man and football yep. manager, and it's like a little avatar, I'm pretty sure it comes up as Herb Renard. He <laughs> is he? Uh, synonymous with coaching about a million different teams. Was he the Zambia manager when they won the African Cup of Nations? Uh, yes, I think he was. He's. I'm oh, looking wow. at his his, He's like the model CV, manager, his resume right? here. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Not not bad. The reason why I gasped is because it didn't quite click to me that Saudi Arabia very likely to go to the Qatar World Cup. And last I checked, those two countries did not have diplomatic relations to the extent that Saudi Arabia had dug a trench to enforce an embargo on Qatar. So how those two are going to get along when the World Cup starts is a fascinating story to keep an eye on. Yeah, I couldn't help notice Joe using the term butchering when he was talking about Saudi Arabia as well. Wonderful stuff. Please. Saudi Arabia and Iran leading their groups. This is in, me, uh, this is me sliding away from the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Newcastle fans, there's one for you. Your boys are doing well. Um, one last <laughs> thing uh, before we leave this one, gents. Let's take a look at the overall picture here. We've mentioned a few of the big dogs. Who do we like to actually do some real damage uh, on the field uh, in Qatar? We've mentioned Brazil, who are unbeaten in qualifying. They've won 11 of their 13 games, as we've mentioned. A great deep squad, lots of youth, lots of experience. Uh, we haven't even discussed France, who qualified as well in this um, in this break. Uh, although, you know, didn't go super far in the Euros. Uh, Germany, we've mentioned. England, I'm whispering it. England, are they a contender? Graham, England. Oh, don't come to me for that one. <laughs> I was going to suggest Spain in all seriousness. Okay. It feels like they're, they are going through a bit of a process with this team and if they can find a bit more cutting edge, which I think they have in their recent qualifiers and in the, in the Nations League as well, I think that I, I, if they can add that to their play, I would almost go as, as far as saying that they would be my favourites for the World Graham, Cup. But I think, wow. I think I speak for everyone. I say that Spain just seem like they're sort of like shackled at the moment and they need a manager to come in and let them do what they want. So I think the best thing they could do would maybe to be sack Luis Enrique and appoint Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and then we see what happens with oh, Luis right, Enrique okay. in a vacant I sense, I sense an uh, alternative uh, agenda here. I don't know what you're talking potentially. about. Potentially. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Luis Enrique would be crazy to leave Spain, and I think any rumors suggesting that he might do that are optimistic at best, because I think Spain <laughs> have a very realistic shot to go pretty far in that tournament, look very good, have sort of refreshed in the way we've talked about some teams needing to refresh, but still have plenty of proven talent as well. It's a very deep Spain team that could have lots of different looks and pose lots of different problems. They are in that sort of top five teams, I would say, for me. Luis Enrique used to live on the street. I live in now. Fun fact for you. Hmm. Uh, Joe, your thoughts on the potential contenders? It has to be the longest street in the world. <laughs> what do you mean? What the amount it? of people that have lived on it or do live in it. Well, the name is Luis Enrique. I, I can't keep track of all these. I'm not, I'm not just referring to, um, to, to people living in the neighborhood, dear. The actual street. Mm. Wow. Ryan, you are hey. so cool. Holy cow. <laughs> I know. Don't, wow. don't you wish just, you were me, Joe? Don't you I wish you were get me? Him, get him. Uh, favorites for me. <laughs> England are definitely up there, Ryan, and you don't have to whisper. It. Brazil, Taylor mentioned them already, Germany, Spain. Uh, another one that I wanted to mention, I don't know how likely it is that they win, but Denmark under mm-hmm. Kasper Holman have been flying right now. They were so Oh, well, by that logic. Denmark have been doing really, really well under Kasper Holman. They were fun at the Euros. They were good at the Euros. They're good on the ball. 
the, the one thing that I think they're they're lacking in some senses is that true superstar, someone who can carry them. But in some some ways, that can be a strength because it gives them a sense of balance. So I don't know if Denmark have enough to win the World Cup, but uh, I wouldn't be totally shocked if that happened. I would. Fair enough. <laughs> we, it, the, unofficial, the unofficial World Cup started when Scotland beat England after England were world champions, correct? In 1967 or whatever, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if Denmark were to win the World Cup, is that another thing Scotland's going to claim is we beat the eventual world champions in By qualifying, proxy. so we also are the world champions? Yeah. All right, cool. We'll, we'll make up something. Right. That's yeah. the way we, we In roll. that case... And also, none of, these, none of these other countries have Billy Gilmore as well, so, you know, that's... <laughs> that is important to note. Yeah. Fact, right? yeah, that's important. <laughs> Taylor, I, I come to you I finally. I Grant's entire World Cup preview is just, do they have Billy Gilmore? No, 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 no. Yes. No, 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 no. Perfect. <laughs> little flowchart of success. Yeah. I like that. Um, Taylor, well, just uh, your thoughts on who's going to win this gosh darn thing. Uh, I mean, I, I have it as um, of, uh, Germany and Brazil as my favorites. I think Spain are in that conversation. I think England, uh, like at this point, are are just sort of the kind of ever-present fixtures, what beaten semifinalists, beaten finalists. The article I was reading this morning was speculating that they need to kind of find a way to get more attacking creativity and more attacking flair because they've solved the issues at the back with Declan Rice and with uh, Calvin Phillips. And my argument would be that, yeah, if you have two more defensive-minded midfielders, that is going to make you more defensively solid, but then that limits what you can do in attack. So it feels like the more defensive you want to go if you're England, the harder it is to find that attacking creativity, especially when you're talking about some players like Harry Kane who aren't in particularly great form. Maybe that turns around under Antonio Conte and we have a resurgent Harry Kane heading into the World Cup, but I do think that's going to be sort of a factor and it would be a larger factor if this were in the summer. There is such a weird thing about, like, normally at the end of the season, we can sort of see what's happening, and that paints a picture for what's to come in the summer. Because we have a summer of no soccer, then a preseason, then the start of the season, then a break for the World Cup, who knows? I mean, I would assume Antonio Conte is still there come the start of next season, but it's just so difficult to know exactly what's going to happen and who's going to be in form and what might change because we have that extra few months of soccer being played and soccer being played regularly, it stands to reason some of these teams that we're talking about are going to be missing big players because you always have injuries mid-season. So who's able to weather that the best, I think, is going to be a big deal. And who is able to best prepare under different circumstances, different conditions. I think Germany is a team that are notoriously good at getting their prep in order, getting their sort of site locations well scouted and picking really good spots to spend their time when they're in country. So I do sort of, again, lean towards uh, Germany are going to have a solid World Cup, which then feels like I'm painting a picture for them to go out on the group stage. <laughs> and, and it also be who, who can handle living on a cruise ship for a also month that. as well. We'll also decide. Also, that. Yeah. That. I'm, pitch, I'm, I'm picturing like uh, a couple teams having like Arrested Development style cruises. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, it's, man, it's gonna be it's gonna be a strange World Cup for sure. Not just because of the time, but yeah, because of the size of the country and like, are you gonna have these teams sort of in, in isolation the way you normally do? But how do you get them out? How do you make sure that people don't go, go stir crazy? I'm excited for the World Cup, but like apprehensively excited more so than just like, yes, it's World Cup year. Let's make this happen. 
I'm frankly looking forward to the four of us after a long, hard day watching soccer in Qatar in the hot tub on the cruise ship after the all-you-can-eat buffet. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't wait. Uh, that just about wraps up our um, international break show. Taylor Rockwell, you've been wonderful. I've been all right, but you've been wonderful, Ryan. Oh, stop it, you. Joe Lowry, thank you so much for your contribs, as always. Thank you, Ryan. And Graham, you spoke about Scotland too much, but thank you very much. <laughs> no, no such thing as speaking about Scotland too much, but thank you, Ryan. Indeed. Listener, thank you so much. We'll be back soon. Bye. Bye.